I'm not sure what accent I should have up here. Uh, I've lived in Texas, in Oklahoma. My wife's from South Jersey. You know that accent. So, uh, but I'll just use my own accent. So, uh, okay. Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 to 15. I invite you to turn there as we continue to study the Sermon on the Mount. As you survey the Gospels and you hear Jesus speak, one thing becomes clear. Jesus hates hypocrisy. He hates religion for show or or personal gain. In fact, that's why he repeatedly attacked the hierarchy, the religious hierarchy of that day, the Pharisees and scribes. He could see right into their hearts and knew their motives. They were more interested in how they looked to others and how they looked to God. It was all about the praise of men, of other people, rather than the praise of God. It was being served and being held in high honor, rather than giving honor to God and serving others. In fact, in a scathing rebuke he gave in Matthew 23, that woe passage where he just lashes out at them. We read this in verse 5 about the Pharisees and the scribes. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. So in our passage this morning, beginning in Matthew 6, chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus begins by stating a principle with their hypocrisy in the background. He says to the disciples and says to us, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven the message puts it this way it's a paraphrase it might be good theater but the God who made you won't be applauding and the righteousness is practicing righteousness before others the righteousness he was talking about was not the judicial righteousness that we're clothed in Christ as, as believers he was talking about the, the religious disciplines the religious practices of that day in fact there were three common acts of piety in the Jewish culture giving to the needy prayer and fasting now there's nothing inherently wrong with that In fact, Jesus is not saying, don't do those. In fact, he says, when you pray, when you fast, when you give. He doesn't say, if you do, it's expected. But his problem with the Pharisees and religious leaders of that day is that they were doing it for their own benefit, to be seen by others. In fact, what he does in our text this morning is that he takes two of those, giving to those in need, giving to those who are poor, and then later giving to uh, praying in public. Verse 2. Thus when you give to the needy, or you give alms, sound no trumpet before you, he says, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they might be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. This is hypocritical, self-focused giving. In fact, the word hypocrite in the Greek had the idea of an actor with a mask on being something they really weren't. 
And that's apropos of what Jesus was attacking the religious leaders of that day. You're acting like you really aren't. You don't really care about giving to the poor. You want to be seen by others, to be praised by others in giving to the poor. And by the way, he says, you have received your reward. You've got the applause of men and women. They think you're a big deal, but we all know the applause of men and women doesn't last very long. So don't be like them. Don't have this hypocritical, showy kind of giving to the poor. Your reward is on this side of earth, but not in heaven. And then he gives the contrast, verse 3. Father-pleasing giving. Give this way, not for show, but seeking the praise and reward of the Father. Verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So don't give the way the hypocrites give, to be seen by others. But give to be seen by God, and you will have the reward. Then he turns to prayer in verses 5 and 6. He attacks the hypocritical prayer life of the religious leaders. And he says, don't pray this way. They're seeking the admiration of others. They're doing it for show. Verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they might be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But rather, verse 6, pray this way, a father-pleasing way to pray. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, I don't think he's saying, suggesting for a moment here that he's prohibiting public prayer as we just did, and he just did, or he's prohibiting uh, prayer meetings and public gathering. He's, he's attacking the religious leaders who would stand in the street corners, pray long prayers in the synagogue, and say, look at me, look at how spiritual I am. Jesus said, well, I'll have none of that. It's not for your glory, it's for God's glory. And the reward will be, you will have communion with God, you will have answered prayer, and he will reward you as he sees you praying. Not for the show, but to see God and him alone. By the way, that's a warning for any of us in ministry especially those of us who are involved in more public ministry, as I am with the gifts I have. And maybe you teach, you preach, or you lead in some way where you're visible. Isn't it a danger that we have mixed motives? I have. There's times I preached, and then uh, I was more interested in what people said afterwards about my preaching and whether God did anything. It's so subtle. It's not for our own glory. It's not to impress others, those of us in public ministry who are up front in some way, form, but we're here to serve the Lord and bring glory to him. And there's a fine line there, isn't it? But I think about many of you, perhaps, that uh, you're not a preacher, you're not a teacher, you're not an elder in the church, you're not in the upfront ministry, but your, your ministry is more hidden. It's behind the scenes. Perhaps uh, you're saving the Lord for his glory out of love. You're working in the nursery. 
or you take a meal to someone who's in need and no one knows about, or you provide transportation for a shut-in to a doctor's appointment, or you're on the soundboard and you're back there in the back and no one really notices unless the sound goes kabunk. <laughs> or, 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 or maybe um, you buy, bought a Wegmans card for a needy family and you just slipped it under the, the, the door of their house not letting them know that you did it. There's reward. We do it for the right motives. It just happened, I came across an article this week, discipleship uh, website by Jen Hesse. And it, the article is entitled, Beauty of Hidden Ministry. The Beauty of Hidden Ministry. And she writes this. Hidden ministry matters to the Lord. Not that he needs the works of our hands. He is Yahweh, God Almighty. The king over all creation who accomplishes what he wills. For reasons we can't fathom, she writes, he chooses to display his power through weak and unworthy people. His grace continually renews us to display his glory on earth. And because we're united with Christ in his death and resurrection, she writes, he's preparing us to receive glory in heaven. Our lives are hidden securely in him, Colossians 3.3. Your ministry might never get top billing at a Christian conference or gain a significant number of social media followers. But that's not the goal. We do it. We do good in the world, but not to be noticed by the world. Our motivation is the same as Christ's, to please the Father. He sees what we do in secret, and he rewards us. Isn't that an encouragement? We do our labor, and the Lord is not in vain. Whether it's public or hidden, the Father notices. In fact, I said this probably before in the context of the church here, that uh, some of the greatest rewards, I think, are going to go to those secret prayer warriors who are on their knees every day praying, praying for others and praying for the gospel. Those, those hidden prayer warriors that we never see, but they just agonize and, and pray to the Lord and seek him every day. Some of those greatest rewards will not go to those who are in public ministry, but to those who quietly use their gifts and motivated by the love of Christ to serve the body. He sees. But Jesus then moves away from sort of the hypocrisy of the religious leaders and their giving and their prayer, and he, he moves from that, the hypocrisy, to the insanity of the pagans' prayer life, praying to their gods. Look at verse 6, or 7. He says, and when you pray, do not heap empty praises. Some translations, don't, don't babble as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. And Jesus says, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. We all remember Mount Carmel, probably, if you read the scripture, 1 Corinthians 18, the big uh, confrontation between Baal and the true God, Yahweh. And you remember the uh, priest of Baal, gave the, they're given the challenge by Elijah, hey, pray to your God and see if he'll light the altar. And you remember what happened? 
They kept going around and around. They got more frustrated. They were crying out. They were cutting themselves. And of course, Baal didn't answer because he's not a God. He's not the true God. And I think what Jesus recognizes that in, in some of the pagan temples of that day, to get the attention of, of, of their God, they would, they would maneuver and be verbose and cry out and use different names for God and do incantations and everything to try to hear from their God. And Jesus says, don't pray like them either. You don't have to be verbose. You don't have to run around the altar. You don't have to come up with special words. I, I love, uh, in Psalm 4, is a verse that I keep reminding myself, the Lord hears when I call to him. 24 access to the Father, to the throne room of God. I don't need to be do gyrations, cut myself, yell, scream, or whatever. He hears. He hears. And, and Jesus gives the reason, verse 8, doesn't he? Why we shouldn't do that like the pagans who pray to their gods. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Al Mohler writes, if we know that our Father knows our needs before we ask Him, we don't, have, we don't feel compelled to try to impress God. In fact, you know, what I think I need from the Father and what He knows I need are usually two different things, right? You ever had that experience? Hey, Lord, get me out of this particular trial. Give me relief. And God said, well, I'm not quite finished with you. I've got some great things I want to do in your life. The Father knows our needs, even before we ask. Now, I said, well, why pray then? He already knows. He's omniscient. Why even pray? And one theologian put it this way, and he says it well. We, we pray in order to express our complete dependence on our Heavenly Father. We pray to build our faith we pray because he is God and we are not. We pray because God has ordained that our prayers are part of his unfolding plan for the universe. See some dads here, and I'm a father. My kids are grown now, but we have grandkids now, eight of them. I try to remember their names as I get older. But as a human father, I remember I would get distracted but I would come home. My kids would try to get the, my attention sometimes, and it wasn't really right. I'd grab my own newspaper or get on this or this project, and they would kind of rattle, and, hey, Dad, Dad, we're here, we're here, we're here. And I wouldn't pay attention. Or, or you know, I didn't have the capability to really understand all their needs. And I felt frustrated at times. But isn't it great we have a father who's never distracted, we can go to him, and he knows our needs. He knows our needs. So don't pray like the pagans. Don't pray just rambling on, hoping that God will hear us. And don't pray like the hypocrites, for sure. Well, how should we pray? But what does authentic prayer look like, Jesus? He said, well, I'll tell you. And that's the Lord's Prayer. 
verses 9 to 13. It's traditionally labeled as uh, the Lord's Prayer. Some uh, commentators label it as disciples' prayer. And they can go either way with this. But if you're familiar with the Lord's Prayer, the first three petitions are Godward. The last three are personal. You want to divide that and understand the Lord's Prayer. I love what Warren Wiersbe said about the purpose of prayer because it fits this prayer that Jesus taught us. He wrote, the purpose of prayer is to glorify God's name and to ask for help to accomplish his will on earth. That's what prayer is about. And I want to make another key point before we dig into this, and it's very familiar, so some of you are going to kind of neutral, but hang with me because we're going to comply this in a, a way maybe you haven't thought. What you and I believe about God, his will, and his purposes will be reflected in our prayer life. You want to hear what I believe about God and, and, and what uh, I believe about his purposes, what I believe about his will? Man, let's look at my prayer journal. Find out what I'm praying for and who, how I view God. And that's the greatness about what Jesus gives us here in this compressed prayer, if you will. He teaches us a view of our Father that maybe we have forgotten. That needs to be the foundation of our prayer life. You notice he starts out in verse 9. He says, pray like this. Now, that's important. We're not necessarily to pray the exact prayer. There's nothing wrong with praying the exact prayer, but uh, we're not to pray it in that sense. It's a pattern. It's an example for us to, to teach us how to pray. I've had the privilege over the years to preach at a lot of different churches, and I preach at churches that are more uh, liturgical, if you will. A little more ritual, and I don't mean ritual in the negative sense, but uh, I preached just in Palmyra last uh, last two Sundays in December, a church, a Reformed church, that repeated the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. They just broke into it, put it into into their worship. Now, I found that good for me because I don't do that enough, but I can imagine, I'm just suggesting this, if you do, Jesus is not saying do it, pray the same prayer every Sunday because sometimes it can become rote, right? Sort of a, oh, just auto, just like anything in worship. So Jesus is not saying use this as a film for the worship service. On the other hand, to ignore what Jesus is teaching us here is to do damage to your own prayer life. So I want to take some time just walking through this familiar example of prayer from Jesus. It starts out with these words. Our Father, who is in heaven. So who are we praying to? We're calling God our Father. And I want you to notice about the prayer, too. There's, there's all third person plural. There's no eyes here. It's the corporate People of God praying. He's teaching his disciples. This is how you pray. Our Father who is in heaven. Let's pause there for a moment. God is our Father. Here we have the supreme creator of the universe who we rebelled against and are alienated from him 
And by his grace now, we are his children, and we can call him what? Our father. Abba father. What kind of father is he? I just wrote down a few things scripturally. Obviously, we could take each one of these and and spend easily 10 minutes on, but who's the father we pray to? He's the father who loved us in sending his son to die for us so we might be his children forever. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, our greater love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God, and such we are! Exclamation point. Wonderful. To wake up every morning and say, I'm a child of God. This Father loves us forever. Romans 8, 31. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. He lists things before that that says nothing can separate. He adopted us. We weren't normally his children. (laughs) We were enemies. But Paul wrote in Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. He adopted us. He's a good father and he gives good gifts. James chapter 1, every good and perfect gift comes from the father of lights. Every good and perfect gift. He's our Father who orchestrates in our lives all things to work together for good. Romans 8, 28, and and 29, 29 explains what the good is, to be conformed to the image of his Son, to take on the beauty of Christ. He disciplines us in love for our good, so we might be more holy, more like Christ. Hebrews chapter 12. He's a father who guarantees you and me a glorious future. Will not fade away. Rich in Christ. We gain Christ himself. We gain the earth, the new heaven, new earth. We gain a new body, on and on and on. He guarantees that. We have a great father, don't we? We're just touching our father who is in heaven. Theologians talk about the imminence and the transcendence of God. The imminence of God has the idea of God is near to us. And that's true, right? If you're a true believer this morning, actually the living God, the third person Trinity, lives inside of us. Nearness, closeness. And then the theologians talk about the transcendence of God, God's holy other. And you see this in this phrase, our Father. He is our Father. He is near to us. He loves us. He cares for us. Who is in heaven? His transcendence. Again, Al Mohler has written an excellent book on, on the Sermon on the Mount. writes these words. God is not merely a benevolent force in the universe or a tribal deity. This is the God who rules and reigns from on high. This is the God who's enthroned over all creation, who enjoys the unending worship of the angelic hosts. This is our high and holy God, and he is our Father. I just uh, mentioned some this morning, uh, teaching the book of Revelation in, in the adult equipped class at our church. It's, it just came from there. We're in the Revelation 4, the great throne room of God. I mean, it's amazing. We didn't finish the chapter, but... Uh, 
you find at the end, they see this great view of God enthroned with the 24 elders around the throne. And what are they singing and praising him for? Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That's our Father. Enthroned in the heavens, high and lifted up. You know, some kid, you can see a kid saying, hey, my dad could beat your dad. Well, my father can beat anybody. <laughs> and so your father, he is great, he is awesome, he is high lifted up, he is sovereign. He's our father. That's who we pray to. And what's the first request we make? There's six requests in this prayer. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed has the idea to, to be set apart, to be holy, to sanctify, to acknowledge as holy. So hallowed be your name has the idea of cause your name, Father, to be honored, to be treasured, to be reverenced above all. Now, isn't the apostle of Scripture, doesn't the apostle of Scripture ring with that that it's all about God and his glory? I mean, we can take easily, you know, again, the rest of the time just rehearsing verses, but let me give you two just from the Psalms. Psalm 115.1, not to us, not to us, but to your name be what? Glory. That's what we're created for. Or a passage that I pray regularly in my own life, Psalm 57.5, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Hallowed be your name. J.I. Packer wrote, about this, about prayer and, and glory of God. He said, men who know their God are before anything else, men who pray, and the first point where their zeal and energy for God's glory comes to come to expression is in their prayers. If this, if there is little energy for such prayer, that is the glory of God, and little consequent practice of it is a sure sign that as yet we scarcely know our God. Remember, he's our father, he's in heaven. Imminent, transcendent. Hallowed be your name. And I think the rest of the requests, the other five requests, really flow out of that key request. How am I supposed to hallow your name? What does it look like? How am I supposed to pray in light of causing your name to be hallowed? We got the second request. Your kingdom come. Now, we know that the gospel, when it is believed and accepted, Christ becomes king in our lives. He rules. We acknowledge him as king and Lord. But it's also a future, isn't it, where the final eternal kingdom of God will come on earth and his rule will be supreme. John Stott said it well, to pray that his kingdom come is to pray that it may grow as through the church's witness to people to submit to Jesus, that soon it will be consummated when Jesus returns in glory to take his power and reign. So we pray your kingdom come. We're trying to pray presently, Lord, may your kingdom spread 
to the peoples of the earth as they accept Christ, acknowledge for who he is as king and Lord. And Lord, we look forward to the fact one day when that kingdom will finally rule. We all know that we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness. Paul wrote in Colossians to the kingdom of his beloved son. We are kingdom people. Church. And we as a church are living out, hopefully corporately, by the grace of God, his kingdom, his rule in our lives, in our midst. But we're also praying for his kingdom to come in the future, aren't we? The next request expands that. Your kingdom come, here it is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know that God's will is not perfectly executed here on earth yet. I'm talking about his decretive will. There's still sin, there's still rebellion, right? Even in our midst as believers, we're, we're still not completely glorified, right? So when we pray that your, your will be done your, on earth as in heaven, it, we're sort of saying, you know, start with us now. May we be more submitted to your will. Because, you know, in heaven, your will and your decree is perfectly followed. There's no sin. There's no rebellion. One author put it this way. This prayer, this particular request is like a revolution. It's a revolutionary prayer. He wrote, the Lord's Prayer is a prayer that turns the world upside down. Are you looking for a revolution? There is no clearer call to revolution than when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, as on earth as is in heaven. And, and brothers and sisters, as his kingdom spreads, as the gospel goes forth to the peoples of the earth and takes root in the lives of men and women, a church is formed, his glory is magnified, and his name is hallowed. So what do we pray when we pray your kingdom come ultimately? And we're praying for the present, obviously, but we're also praying for the future. Again, I'm going to rely on Al Mohler because I think he says it well. What do we pray for? What are we expecting when we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? He suggests we are praying that history will be brought to a close. When we pray that, we're praying to see all the nations rejoice in the glory of God. When we pray that, we're praying to see Christ honored as king in every human heart. When we pray this prayer, we are praying to see Satan bound, evil vanquished, and death is no more. Can I have an amen for that one? We are praying to see the mercy of God demonstrated in the full justification and acquittal of sinners through the shed blood of the crucified and resurrected Christ. When we pray this prayer, your will be done on earth as in heaven, we are praying to see the wrath of God poured out upon sin. We are praying to see every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we pray this prayer, we are praying to see a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, and a new earth, and a new creation. Your kingdom done, come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a big prayer, folks. But 
it's a prayer that certainly is going to be answered one day. We are praying that Revelation 11.15 will be fulfilled in our lifetime. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ, of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We're praying, basically, shorthand, come, Lord Jesus, come. So those God word prayers, big prayers. We should pattern our prayer life around the kingdom and the exaltation of the Father and for his kingdom to come, his will be done. Now, the last three requests are personal needs, centered on what we need. Or as one author put it this way, it, it's from the majestic now to the mundane, in a sense. For look, the first prayer request, in verse 11, or number four, actually, but personal. Give us this day our daily bread. In other words, give us enough bread for the coming day. Now, that probably doesn't mean much to us because we have Wegmans and whatever, and for most of us, we can just uh, hop in a car and uh, go down and get bread and food, and you come to our refrigerator, it's full. But remember, he was teaching the disciples who were about to launch their own ministry, and they would not have any real support. And in that culture, you know, you bought bread every day because you, it would only last a day. So you were immensely dependent on the marketplace and on the production of food and of course, we know in some parts of the, of the world there's famine. So he, he's saying, you're, you know, you've got these majestic, you pay these kingdom prayers, but um, you can go to the Father and give us this day our daily bread. Well, it's a bit the obvious, at least I will. The, if, if we even pray, we should pray at the beginning of our meal, doesn't it come a little perfunctory? You know, who's going to pray? Oh, I'll pray. Yeah, yeah, we don't have to uh, go out and toil the, the land and, and, and rely directly to a farmer and to the rain and everything else, but we take for granted, don't we, that we have this daily sustenance from the king. But he provides the job that we have money to have food. He orchestrates the weather to produce food. And we need food for life. He provides. Give us this day our daily bread. Then he moves to the next, our need for forgiveness from God. Verse 12, fifth request. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Now it sounds like a little bit of a financial term, and it could be, but the parallel passage in Luke 11, 4 uh, the term sin, sins are used there. So I think he's talking about spiritual debt that we have against God which is apropos, we, in fact, we sing this uh, hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, sin has left a crimson stain, but what? He paid it all. It, it's great to wake up in the morning and say, I have no debt to God anymore. So what is he talking about here? Is he talking, he's talking to disciples, I think he's talking to believers. Well, I think he's talking about not what we would call theologically forensic forgiveness, that it happens when we trust Christ, we are forgiven completely, we are clothed with his righteousness. He's talking about here more family forgiveness, our closeness to God, our fellowship with God. 
1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's writing that to believers. That when I sin and, and don't confess it and ask God's forgiveness, it, I, I, I'm not near to God. The fellowship's not there. That's the, that's the point of uh, 1 John chapter 1. So Jesus is saying, listen, you know you're going to sin, and so pray this prayer. Forgive us our debt, debts as what? We forgive our debtors. In other words, we're saying to the Father, I have no one that I have a grudge against, that I'm bitter toward, that I have an unforgiving spirit. I have forgiven them. So Father, forgive me. I want to have deep fellowship with you. In fact, if you look at verses 13 and 14, or 14 and 15, we have further commentary from Jesus on this, anticipating the disciples kind of, what do you mean by that? He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your Father, Heavenly Father, will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In other words, I think Jesus is saying, you can't expect the Father to forgive you as, a, as his adopted child to forgive you of your sin you just committed in this family relationship if you're not willing to forgive others. In fact, how can you have a repentant spirit if you say, Father, forgive me for the wrongs I've done to you when I haven't forgiven those who wronged me? Do you see? It has nothing to do necessarily with the lostness. He's just saying this is part of the rhythm of, of walking with God and walking in the light. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The sixth one, our need for protection from temptation. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, what is he saying there? Well, I don't think, don't think Jesus is saying that God tempts us to do evil. In fact, James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, states that very clearly. God himself is not tempted, and he had tempts no one. So, so what exactly is he saying here? What does he mean? We're faced with temptation every day, aren't we? And not just from within, in our sinful flesh, but we are in a world of temptation in which the evil one is throwing temptation at us all the time. And if you don't believe that, if I don't believe that, we're in deep trouble. We're in a spiritual battle. And I think what Jesus is saying here, we pray the Father, don't lead us into temptation, protect us from that temptation. Protect us from the evil one. Or 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the, the prayer or the comment by Paul on temptation, where he writes, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I think that's the background of this prayer. No, don't, Father, don't lead us into that kind of temptation where we fall. Protect us. Protect us from evil, from the evil one. How many of us think about a spiritual battle every day? He attempted Eve and Adam. He's a deceiver. He's always at work trying to tempt us in 
And then Jesus, I think, is asking, saying, do you seek the Father? And say, Father, don't lead us into temptation. Don't allow Satan to protect us from the evil one. So what do we pray for? We pray to a Father who is in heaven, who is on the throne, who loves us, who's sovereign. We pray that his name would be revered and treasured, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be treasured and obeyed, on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that we would have that daily sustenance because in him we love, move and live and have our being. We just pray for that daily bread. We thank him for that. We pray to experience his forgiveness as all one of the cross when we disobey our Father based on the finished work of Christ. And we pray in the midst of the kingdom of darkness for him to deliver us from the evil one. That's a great prayer. Here's one close. Why don't you stand with me? We're not going to recite the Lord's Prayer, but I'm going to pray in light of the Lord's Prayer and apply just what we've talked about. And, and I'm going to pray. And hopefully as I pray, you will join with me. I'm going to pray in the, in the, the third person plural together each part of this prayer as we close. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we want your name to be hallowed. For your name is great and greatly to be praised. You are to be feared above all. You are enthroned. And we desire above all else as your adopted children in Christ to exalt your name and to see your name lifted up. Father, we want your kingdom to come. We are grateful that you, by your grace and mercy, have delivered us from the domain of darkness and put us in the kingdom of your beloved Son. And we desire above all else, Father, for your glorious rule that we have experienced to spread among this community, our country, and the nations. We, we, we desire that many will be under your rule and all the freedom that it brings. We want your perfect will to be done on every square inch of this earth, just as your will is being perfectly obeyed and carried out in heaven. And we do look forward to the ultimate fulfillment of your will being done on earth. Your son, King Jesus, returns to rule and to reign. May he come quickly. Give us our daily bread, Father. We're not asking for bigger houses or luxurious cars or a cottage by the lake. These things will pass away, and we are already rich in you. We have a glorious inheritance waiting for us, but we are asking for bread, just enough to give us life. We want to be healthy, to have a body, and have the energy to do the work of the kingdom. Would you give us what we need to sustain our lives for the advancement of your kingdom? We acknowledge that in you we live and move and have our beings, and we are thankful for your daily provision. Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We acknowledge that we have new hearts and we're a new creation, but the sinful flesh is still in us and, and we will sin until we are glorified. We have no desire to hold any grudge, to be filled with bitterness and willingness to forgive others. We acknowledge that we don't deserve your forgiveness, so we have no right to withhold from you, to withhold from anyone, 
the forgiveness because you've forgiven us. We let go of all of our offenses against us. We know that you are more than willing to forgive, not only because you are our Father, but that you gave your Son to die in our place for our sins, and he paid it all. And, oh, Father, we desire and we want to extend that forgiveness to others who have offended us. And, Father, do not lead us in temptation, but to protect us, deliver us from the evil and from the evil one. We don't want to go on sinning. We are thankful for forgiveness, but, Father, we don't want to sin. Please don't let us, lead us into the entanglements of overpowering temptation. Protect us from evil. Protect us from the Satan and all his works and all his ways to deceive us. Protect us from the onslaught of the evil one this week and provide the escape from temptation for we cannot do this alone. So, Father, we pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank that you gave us this model. May your will be done in our lives this week for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you.